Welcome to the Exchange Church Podcast. Feel free to join us live on Facebook every Sunday at 10 a.m. at facebook.com slash exchangechurch. The following message is brought to you by our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. Amen. Good morning, good morning, good morning. So good to see you this morning. Those that are watching online, so glad that you're here. Uh, to be a part of our service today and and it's really good that you're here and you're tuning in because I'm not going to talk so much about you because if you're not here this morning and you listen to this later you might think that maybe I was talking about you but I'm not so I'm glad that you're here and then we just settle all of that but I want to talk this morning about a word that we uh, initially hate Um, it's a word that I think probably most of us uh, we initially hate this word, but somehow over the course of time, maybe most of us have come to love this word. I don't know. Uh, you, I'll let you decide whether you do or don't. But the word is this, discipline. Ooh, everybody say, ooh, right? <laughs> Mufasa. I'm going to say it again, discipline. Ooh. ooh, it just gives me goosebumps, right? Because discipline is one of those words that we initially hate, but tend to turn to love it, you know, sometimes, some situations. Discipline is like that friend that you don't want to see coming. You avoid them, but then after you see them and spend time with them, you're glad you did, but you're glad they're leaving, right? Discipline is like working out. Anybody? Right? You didn't want to work out. You avoid working out, but then when, after you have worked out, you're glad you did, right? That's kind of how discipline works. And so I remember a few years ago, uh, my wife Shelly and I met this guy, and so a lot of you probably know him. Uh, he has a gym down here on, on 1960. His name is Logan, and uh, he has Loganitish gym. And we met him, and when we met him, he was sleeping in his car. Uh, he was trying to, he had a gym in Dayton, kind of, and he was trying to open up this gym here on 1960, and we met him, he was living in his car, he had just upgraded from a moped to a car that didn't work half the time, so he's living in the car, and so we decided, man, Shelly really wanted to work out bad, so she started working out, and so we just started buying him equipment, we bought him mats and dumbbells and just all kinds of equipment. And then I had a weight set in my house. It's like a $1,000 weight gently used when I say gently. Free station bench, and it was awesome. And it was gently used. When I say gently, I mean very gently used. <laughs> like I checked to make sure all the pulleys were right, but that was it. And uh, I gave this to Logan and uh, to help him really kind of get going and and it's awesome. And now if you go see him, his gym is really blown up. I mean, he is, he is just kicking it. But I remember Shelly going to work out, and she was coming home all the time. She's like, oh, my goodness, this is awesome. Look at, you know, look at my tone and all this. And she started trying to talk me into working out. And so I was like, well, you know, I really don't want to. I don't have time. And Logan would say things like, dude, anytime you want. And, you know, Monday through Friday, if you want to come at 4 in the morning, I'll meet you. If you want to come at 10 at night, I'll meet you. If you want to come at lunch? And I was like, ugh. So he kind of took away my excuse. So eventually I started working out with Logan. And, and I'm telling you, it was miserable. <laughs> I, 
I tried to get a hold of him this week to ask for permission to say and show some of the things I'm going to say and show, but I, I couldn't get a hold of him, so I'm just going to do it anyway. But uh, I mean, it was, I, re- I remember after one of the workouts, getting in my car, and this was probably four or five days into me working out. I had already worked a lot of the soreness out, and I got in my car, and I had to tell Siri to call my wife because I couldn't get my phone. And I had to call Shelly because I needed her to come get me because I couldn't drive, I couldn't get my hand to the steering wheel. Like, it wouldn't, I, I could see my hand, I could see my fingers move, but I couldn't. And I thought, this is so dangerous. I, I can't react, you know, a car's going to be coming at me and I'm going to go, yeah, you know. And so it was that bad. And I'm going to show you a picture of Logan uh, this is him in high school, from high school to now. So now you can see, that's what I was dealing with. That's what I was dealing with. And he's so motivational. He's like, come on, this is great. And he's constantly like Snapchatting and got the camera in your face so you feel obligated to act like you're having a good time. And, and he was just so pump up and motivational. And I decided that what I needed to do was I needed to make a shirt that when I would go see Logan on the front of the shirt, it says, I hate Logan. (laughs) And then on the back of the shirt, it says, I love Logan. Because the truth is, though we all resist discipline initially, once we step out and we begin to do those things, we really are glad we did, right? And and so that's kind of the way discipline works. We initially resist discipline discipline, but we never regret discipline. We resist some good habits, but we never regret good habits. And we learn to celebrate self-control. We celebrate self-controlling ourselves and others, but initially, self-control in multiple areas is really a struggle. Somebody say amen. If y'all have any kind of eating habits that are not that great like me, self-control can become a struggle. I, I, I tell you, I wake up sometimes or I go to bed sometimes at night thinking I'm going to get up and do more exercise. But I have little self-control in that area, and I can't. I, I'm struggling making myself do that. But this is kind of interesting. It may not always be the case for you, but I want to make a couple statements here. Because I believe it's true. Motive is unrelated to outcome. Okay? And also, not just motive, but attitude. Attitude also is unrelated to outcome. And what I mean by that is that if you eat clean for all the wrong reasons and with a bad attitude, you will still reap the benefits of eating clean right? In fact, your attitude after you start eating clean, even though you have a bad attitude, your attitude might even begin to change, and your motive might begin to change as well. We've experienced this. We've experienced this because we've seen an ought to that becomes a want to. You know, I ought to do this, and then eventually I want to do this because it begins to, our motive and our attitude begins to change and endure becomes actually enjoy. In fact, probably a lot of us uh, could explain or, or talk or tell a story about something in our lives that began as an ought to 
And now that you don't have it in your life, you kind of miss it, you know? It's an ought to. It started as an endurance test, but it became something that you actually enjoy or miss. I remember throughout high school, I hated, hated, hated running. I liked sprinting. I liked running fast, real quick, and getting it over with. And I was fast, but that's all I liked. I hated running, just running. And I didn't understand people's joy in just running. You know, it didn't make sense to me. Well, in my early 20s, um, I kind of got into this habit for a little while of running. I decided I was going to try to stay in shape, and I started running. Well, after months of running and quite a while, it became something that I enjoyed. And so this running that I did not like, I started to enjoy running. And then I blew out my knee playing basketball, and so I couldn't run anymore. And what I hated that I learned to enjoy, I couldn't do anymore and once I lost it, I kind of missed it, you know? Even though in my mind I still hate running for some reason, I miss that I can't run. I see people running down the street. I roll down my window and I'm like, run, Forrest, run, you know? Because they can. And, and I miss that. And anyway, the point is this, is that here's something that we all know, that, and it, what begins as a sheer discipline that ultimately becomes a habit, often becomes a lifestyle, and it becomes life-changing for many of us. These things that, that we push ourselves to becomes life-changing, and, and maybe more importantly, it's life-preserving, whether it's exercise or eating less or eating less sugar or, or even saving more or spending less or calling mama more, I don't know, whatever your discipline is, it becomes a discipline. Because here is the truth, and everybody get this, if you want to take a picture of this or write this down, discipline facilitates progress, okay? Now, I'm going to give you a bold statement here, but I believe this is the truth. There is no progress without discipline, almost in any area of your life. This is true personally and professionally and academically and corporately. It's true nationally. Discipline also facilitates prosperity. Here is the rub. Financially, relationally, and even physically. But here is the rub. Here is the problem that we have with discipline. Discipline requires delayed gratification. Wah, wah, wah. Right? Because I want it now, daddy. Right? Name that movie. There you go. I want it now. And discipline requires delayed gratification. That's why working out didn't work for me. I couldn't handle the delayed gratification. I want it now. I want six-pack now, daddy. <laughs> I want to see my abs now. And, and it didn't happen. And so <laughs> working out wasn't working for me. But it requires delayed gratification. And you understand what delayed gratification is. It is doing what we ought to do now so that we can do what we want 
to do later. And that's the issue. That's the issue we face when it comes to discipline. Now, if you've been tracking along with us over the last four weeks, and today makes week number five, we have been in a series called Faithful, and it's a series about having a real gritty, in the world, life-changing faith in a world that's actually kind of faithless. And we've been going through this. The, base of this. the basis of this series is about the fact that Jesus was really clear when Jesus was talking and speaking to his first century followers, and it carries along throughout the generations to his 21st century followers, he was clear that his agenda or his goal towards us, that we would be a people of great faith, powerful, strong, real, in the world faith, faith that shows up at work, faith that shows up at school, faith Faith that shows up when everything seems to be falling apart. Faith that shows up when things are great. But real world faith. So Jesus, he explains this to us because he gives us an initial invitation. Most of you, if you've been listening, pay attention, paying attention uh, over the last few weeks, you'll know this. That his initial invitation to us was this. Follow me. Okay? Now, there's probably no one else on planet Earth that ever walked the Earth that has the credentials and the background to be able to say that. Follow me. Follow me. I want you to follow me because you're going to learn some things. But I want you to look at me and watch. I want you to live your life and, and, and watch me live my life and the fact that my life is surrounded on my faith in my heavenly Father. I want you to watch me and respond to people in light of your abiding strong faith in your heavenly Father. He says, I want you to watch me, watch the way I live because I'm living my life out within the context of this deep, deep abiding trust and faith in my heavenly Father. And he says, I want you to learn and live in such a way that reflects that deep and abiding faith. I want you to move in a different direction. And Jesus, honestly, never, ever changed that invitation. That initial invitation was his invitation all along. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Unfortunately, the church took the Gospels, and we kind of dumbed it down just a little bit, and we reduced follow me to just believe in me. And, and yes, Jesus does say a couple times, believe in me, but that's at the beginning, because believe in me is actually easy, okay, right? If you had two options to believe in me or follow me, believe in me is a lot easier. It requires a lot less of us. It's not nearly as demanding as follow me, right? And believe in me just kind of leaves us right where we are. It leaves us with, with right where we are, exactly the way we were, with really no change, because believe in me is not enough. We talked about that a few weeks ago. If believe in me was enough, I would have abs right now, right? If believing was just enough, but demanding for me. And that was far too demanding for me. Because Jesus didn't want to invite us to simply believe things about him 
or to simply believe things about God. He invited us into a lifestyle. Everybody say lifestyle. A lifestyle that reflects deep abiding faith in our Heavenly Father. Because belief alone, if it just stays right in your head, it actually creates a feeble, frail, and fragile faith. Faith that is easily broken and faith that is easily lost. In fact, one of the reasons that maybe some of you here or some of you that are watching or listening to our podcast, one of the reasons maybe that you lost faith or you are losing faith is because you never did anything with that faith. Um, it, faith is a muscle that you have to work out. And there are muscles in my body that used to be strong that I haven't touched in, in years. You know, I haven't, I haven't touched those muscles in years. And I can do something out of the ordinary, you know, that, that I never do, and all of a sudden I tap into the muscle that I forgot all about was there, and it hurts so bad because I haven't touched that muscle, and eventually, if that muscle's never worked out, it just withers and withers and withers, and it becomes not useful because believing me is just not enough. I mean, we would say things like this, oh, yeah, I believe. I believe, do you believe in God? Oh, yeah, I believe in God. I believe in God. I believe in God. But we were never allowed, we never activated that belief, and we never put our faith in real-world action. We never exercised that muscle. And so here's how you express it when you do that. We say things like this. After we've never exercised that faith muscle, we start to say things like this. I, I honestly, I'm not sure what I believe anymore. We say things like this, you know, I'm not even sure what is true anymore. I'm not even sure I think that's true. And that's where faith begins. But if it's not activated, it recedes into simply ideas and concepts in our mind. And Jesus invited us into a lifestyle that is so much bigger uh, that, and so much more dynamic, and he invites us to follow him. He invites us, think about this, to wake up every single day acknowledging the fact that Jesus is our Lord, that God, our Father, is a good, good Father. He doesn't invite us to just simply believe something. It's, we have to remind ourselves of this question, what would I do, you know? Not what do I believe or what do I think or how would I respond or how would I react, but what would I do? Where would I go? Where would I refuse to go? What would I initiate? What would I avoid? What would I attempt? What would I do if I was confident that God was with me? What would I do if I was confident that God was with me? That, my friends, is called a life of faith, a life of faith. And Jesus invited his first century followers. He still today invites his 21st century followers into that life of faith. So in this series, what we've been doing is we've been asking the question, what is it that creates that kind of faith? What is it that creates and helps maintain that gritty, real, in the real world, the kind of faith when you're actually, you know, it's, it's so easy, so easy to have faith when you're surrounded by butterflies and rainbows, right? It's so easy to walk in this church 
on a Sunday morning and begin to sing and worship and have faith in that moment. But when you leave and you're faced with real world circumstances and real world situations and you have to have a real conversation with your kids and and you're dealing with difficulty in your finances and you're dealing with your job situation and moving and you're dealing with health or whatever it might be, it's a lot more difficult. And we know people who we've seen them in those situations. You know, we get faced with a really difficult situation and our world sometimes can crumble. But we've seen people who are faced with a situation that when we see their faith through that situation, we go, wow, how did they get that? How are they so strong? How are they so strong to make it through whatever it is they're going through. And so in this series, we've been answering that question. How did they get that? How do I get that? How do we get that? In other words, here's the question. What fuels or facilitates the development of active, enduring faith? As we've said over the last few weeks, we believe that there are, there are five, we're calling them the five faith catalysts. Now, I do believe that there are actually a lot more probably than that, but there are five faith catalysts that show up all the time, and these are based on the life and the teachings of Jesus Christ as he walked us through, as we see his life lived out through the Gospels, and it's also uh, brought to us by people, hundreds and hundreds of people who We've seen their faith stories, or we've heard their faith stories, men and women who are mature Jesus followers who faced very difficult situations, and and they have this confidence in God. And when they tell their stories, all these five things always shows up. These five things show up in every one of their stories, and, and that's what we call the five faith catalysts. And these five faith catalysts, they they touch every part of our lives from childhood, adolescence, through our teenage years, through our single life and college years and our married life and then divorce life and then lost jobs and success and failures and opportunities and kids and, and all those things through retirement. These five faith catalysts touch every area of those lives, of our lives. So, The first week we talked about, the first one was practical teaching. I'm going to kind of fly through these for a moment just to catch up with time. Practical teaching. We talked about a time in our lives, and you hear this in everybody's faith story, a time in their lives when someone took what they believed or what they had been taught since childhood, and they actually gave them handles. They gave them an opportunity to apply that and live that out loud. They were given a moment where they, they had to actually do something, and they stepped out in this, and they felt God nudge them, and they stepped out, and, and as they did that, as their obedience to God, they stepped out, and God's faithfulness intersected with their obedience, and their faith began to grow. And they talk about a time when someone, their youth pastor or their pastor or their husband or wife, gave them practical teaching and application, and their faith grew. The second one was personal ministry. 
We talked about when people tell their story about the first time that they actually served or that they served a group of people. And I know probably a lot of you that are in this room and those of you that are watching, you can really relate to this one because as a pastor for years, this is the one I, I deal with probably the most because everybody wants to help, right? People say, I want to help, I want to get involved. And then you give them areas that they can get involved in, and they go, ooh, I don't know if I could do that. <laughs> I feel so inadequate. I don't feel prepared. I don't know if I'm, what if I get involved in youth and they ask me questions and I don't know the answer. I haven't read the whole Bible, Pastor, right? Uh, I don't know everything. I don't know what, I, I don't even know everything that we believe. I just feel so inadequate. Or we ask them to, to lead a small group and we're like, all you gotta do is take this videotape, push it in, and, or this DVD and push it in. There you go, I went, dated myself. And, and put this DVD on and, it's going to ask these questions. It's going to lead the thing. And then you just open your home. And they're like, oh, but what if somebody asked me? I just feel so inadequate. But in these personal ministry stories, they do that. They step out, and they'll tell a time of the first time that they stepped out to serve, whether it's kids or youth or in a small group. And they say, I felt so inadequate. But let me tell you, God showed up. Oh, man, God ministered to me way more than he ministered to the people that I was serving. It was so good. That's the, that's the example of personal ministry. And they say, my faith grew when I stepped out. The third thing that, that Pastor Jay talked about last week was providential relationships. When people tell their faith story, this always comes into play. Providential relationships. When, when you, you, you may be telling your faith story and you say, I remember when my mom and dad got divorced and my mom got remarried and he was a Christian. He was a believer. And he came into my life and taught me so much. Or I remember when we moved and I lived next door to this, this, this kid and we started becoming friends and her mom was such a, a good Christian believer and they taught me so much. Or I remember when I started this job and I just started this job to make a little money but my boss, my boss was a believer and just changed my life. And these providential relationships are stories of people that when you tell your faith story, almost every faith story has it, people that you can go back to and say, God put this person in my life in just the right time. I needed this person. I needed this relationship. I needed this love, this teaching, whatever it may be. And that's what, what a providential relationship is. And so today, we're going to talk about number four, the fourth faith catalyst. And this is the fourth dynamic that you hear people talk about all the time when they tell their faith story. And we're going to, today, we're going to call it private disciplines, or you could call it private spiritual disciplines. Now, again, when people tell their faith story, a lot of times their faith story begins with, you know, I remember the first time that I actually started reading and studying the scriptures. Have you ever heard a story that started like that? Or I remember the first time that I actually began to pray for the first time. Not a reactional prayer like, God, you know, 
please help me find a parking spot, or God, please have him call me back, or, or whatever. But I'm talking about a prayer that I actually cleared some space. I got alone, and I just learned to talk to my Heavenly Father. And, or I, I remember a time that I just began to give, you know? I began to give of my time and my talents and my treasure. I began to serve and give, and, and I, I, I began to give in the offering. I began to sow into ministry, not just a dollar here and there, but I, I became a giver. And when we tell these, these faith stories, these things are all, they all show up over and over and over. But the key to these disciplines that I'm talking about uh, is this ought to be, eventually can become a want to. These spiritual disciplines, when people tell their story, the key factor in their growing faith is they say things like this, I pre-decided, okay? I pre-decided that I was going to get up early in the morning and I was going to spend a little bit of time in prayer and reading through uh, the Gospels. Or I pre-decided that I was going to show up and I was going to sow a seed, a certain amount, a percentage into the church and into the kingdom. Or, you know what, I pre-decided that I, like a lot of you did this morning, I pre-decided that I was going to go up and I was going to go to church. I was going to wake up, I was going to get dressed, and I was going to go to church, whether I get something out of it or I don't, because there's something about repetition that creates habits in our life. And when we do this, it creates disciplines in our life. And these disciplines build our faith. Sometimes it's enjoyable. Sometimes it's not so enjoyable. But despite however you feel about it, your faith begins to grow. I was thinking about as I was writing this message out, Something my dad used to say all the time as I was growing up, and he would say this, he still says this uh, all the time, is he, he would say, Jared, just remember this, the most important thing in your life is your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He would say that all the time. The important thing in your life is your personal relationship with with Jesus Christ. And listen, what he let me tell you what he meant by that. He wasn't talking about church. He was he was saying it's not about church, it's not about learning, it's not just about principles, it's not just about application. He was saying that there is a very personal, intimate side to this. It's about waking up every single morning with a sense of accountability to my Heavenly Father. That nobody else knows what I'm going through, but my Heavenly Father understands. Nobody else knows what I care about, but my Heavenly Father gets it. Nobody else sees what the decisions that I have to make or the pressure that's weighing on my shoulders. Nobody else sees that, but my Heavenly Father sees it and He understands. That's my personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the most important thing in our lives. And I'm going to say this, and it's not popular probably from the pulpit or whatever you want to call this, but it's not, the most important thing is not a doctrine. It's not a belief system. It's not a label. It's not church. Again, it takes us back to a very intimate, 
intimate moment when Jesus extends an invitation to us. He extended it then, and he extends it now today when he said this, follow me. Follow me. There has to be something personal about this. There has to be something daily, minute by minute, all-encompassing every area of our lives. This is it. We've talked about this before. This is the thy will be done part. Thy will be done right here, right now in my life, and this is so important. Our spiritual lives and our following Jesus's routines, they're both external and they're internal. We've talked a lot about the external, but there are times when you step out and you step up and you obey and you serve. But let me say this, just because you have all these external things working and you're doing all these things that on the outside looks like you're doing enough, if there's not something internal, you're missing it. Thank you, Brother Charles. You're missing it. There has to be something internal, internal to know that God is God and that your heavenly Father knows and he understands right where you are. If there's not something personal about it, what happens is over time we begin to lose what we feel is a personal connection to God. What happens is church becomes routine. We don't really get anything out of it. It's not really anything. We're losing this personal connection. It becomes somewhat corporate. We grow cold. We become cynical. We become judgmental. Nobody in this room. I'm talking about people that are not here today. Uh, But that's what happens, right? How many of you know somebody, and don't raise your hands with this, but how many of you know somebody that you see them and you go, wow, I know you're a church person. I know you call yourself a Christian and you're very churchy and religious and all that, but wow, you are not a nice person, right? Y'all know people like that, that people that you think, you know what? I pray to God my son and my daughter never marries into your family because I don't want to have to put up with you the rest of my life, right? And we laugh about it. We all know people like that. You go to church, you put on this label of Christian, you act externally and do all these things, but you're mean. You're just a mean person. You're mean to people. Y'all know people like that? I do. Uh, and, And I, I know that's a very churchy thing, it's a very church word to say, but you just don't seem very Christ-like. I mean, you're churchy, you do all these things, but you know, we've met people like that, right? But here's the danger. If there's not a personal side to your faith, you become critical, you become cynical, you become judgmental. In fact, once again, if you've lost your faith, or if you're losing your faith, isn't it true that that one of the first things that despite uh, or, or whatever was any kind of personal connection with your heavenly father, isn't it true that in fact it didn't really begin with, well, I don't believe that anymore. Or I don't think that's true anymore. It always begins somewhere else. And if we're not fostering and developing the personal side of our relationship with Jesus Christ, then we're no longer following. Somebody say amen. Think about that. If we're not developed, then we're no longer personal side with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Then we're no longer following. We might still believe, 
but we're not following because following requires so much more. We're just claiming and wearing a label because the personal side of Christianity is what releases the kingdom of God in your life. Oh, somebody say amen. I'm going to say it again. The personal side of Christianity, the intimate side of Christianity is what releases God's rule in our lives. It allows us to answer the question and it forces us to grapple with the question, is Jesus really Lord of my life? Or is this just something that I believe? Is this just something I believe in? And if you're here and if you're watching this morning, ask yourself that question. Is Jesus really Lord of my life? Or is this just something I believe in? This is two very different answers. I'm a Christian. Well, great. But is Jesus Lord of your life? Does, are you following him still? Do you follow his lead? And if we're not careful, if we don't develop and foster and invest a personal side of our walk with God, it becomes very corporate. And over time, and I'm just telling you this, that some of you, you may be wrestling with this right now, uh, or at least you have been in the past. Your faith, the categories, the belief part, it begins to dissipate. But the personal side if we fine-tune it, it fine-tunes our conscience so that what bothers God begins to bother you. When you fine-tune the personal side of your personal relationship with God, it begins to inform and, and conform your conscience to the things that bother God, and they begin to bother you. And the things that makes God happy, that brings God joy, begins to bring us joy. So when people tell their faith stories, there are these disciplines that always surface, and there's three things that I want to focus on this morning, and I'll, I will go through them quickly, but there's three things that always come up, and we're going to talk about that, and they're these three right here. Daily devotions, percentage giving, and corporate worship, okay? Some of you already have tuned me out just hang with me this morning. When people tell us their faith story, even if you were to tell us your faith story, you would probably bring these up, maybe not necessarily in those terms or the way I said it, but you would probably bring them up, especially the first one, daily devotions. Because daily devotions, and let's talk about that real quick, daily devotions are where people tell their story and they talk about for the first time in their lives that they begin to read portions of the scripture. And they actually started to study. And look, here at the exchange, we have really pushed and encouraged uh, all of you guys to study and to look deeper and to, to, to really get into the nitty gritty of the gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I, I dare you, challenge you to just track through those gospels. I could spend a year easy a year on the, the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, one of my favorite books. But what, what happens is you hear people tell these stories, and, and, and if you just begin to study that, you could wake up and say, you know what, I want to I see what's going on this morning in the life of, 
of Jesus. And so just go through those Gospels or go through the life of David in the Old Testament or look and, and see where we get our Bible, where it comes from, and, and how to understand it, how to read it, how to interpret it, and how to apply it every day in our life. And then as you're reading through, as you're studying these Gospels, spend a little bit of time in prayer, praying, because though these are moments unlike preaching and unlike teaching, although it happens sometimes in preaching or teaching, I would like to believe, these are moments that when you, you feel God speaking to you, I'm not saying God, God doesn't speak to you through the preaching and teaching because that happens. That happens often. But it's in these moments when we set personal time, daily devotional time aside, and we focus on our relationship with God that we feel the Holy Spirit inside of us. And God begins to prompt us to do something. God begins to prompt us to say something. God begins to prompt us or to warn us against something or against a decision where he begins to remind you or he begins to encourage you. Why? Because you have invited him into the details and the complexity of your life. When you begin to invest personal time, you invite him into your life. Now remember, Jesus taught us how to pray, and we talked about this a couple months ago. Jesus says, listen, you, you need to pray. I, I'm teaching you how to pray. And he says, but when you pray, now he assumes that we're going to pray, right? He says, but when you pray, go into your room, which was difficult back then. They had little bitty houses, leather doors, whatever. He says, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. So if you just take what Jesus is saying there, Jesus is actually challenging us, daring us, or commanding us, however you want to look at it, to pray, to spend time, set time aside, and focus on God, our Heavenly Father, to give God our undivided attention. And of course, Jesus practiced this. Do you believe that? Amen. Amen. Investigated the entire life of Jesus. He went and he, 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 he uh, got eyewitness accounts and he interviewed everybody that, that knew Jesus and talked to Jesus that watched from close and watched from a distance. So Luke investigated thoroughly the life of Christ. And Luke says this, and he's talking about Jesus. He says, yet the news about Jesus spread all the more. Everybody was talking about him so that the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. What does that mean? That means that Jesus was a very busy man. Okay? He was a busy he was in great demand. He was in great demand because there were crowds of people. Everywhere he went, people were following them. They wanted something from him. They wanted to hear him. They wanted to blackmail him. They wanted to get something from him. Whatever it was, everybody began to follow Jesus. But in spite of how important his work was, and Jesus' work was important. Can I get an amen? Right? His work, he had basically three years to save the world. I would call that stressful. Okay? So Jesus worked. Despite how, how hard and how busy he was, he always made time to pray. Because Luke goes on and he says this, but Jesus often withdrew to a 
lonely place and he prayed. And he prayed. I don't know about you, but I always grew up know, hearing these scriptures and knowing these scriptures. And my first thought has always been, that's so crazy to me that Jesus prayed. You know, you need to pray. 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 But Jesus, he would be the last person in the world that I would think needed to pray. I mean, he was God incarnate. You know, he was he was God and man. He was part of the Trinity for crying out loud. But Jesus prayed, and it was complicated. Jesus prayed all throughout his ministry. And listen, Peter, who actually hung out with Jesus all through, through his ministry, Peter was telling Mark, and Mark dictated this, wrote it down. He put it in the Gospel of Mark. Peter says this, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, and he left the house, and he went off to, there it is again, a solitary place where he did what? He prayed. It says very early in the morning, he got up, left his house, and he went to a solitary place, and he prayed. And eventually, the, the disciples, the apostles, they wake up. They go and fix breakfast, eating breakfast. They go to Jesus' room or wherever he's at, and they notice he's not there. They kind of freak out for a minute. They panic. I mean, in their minds, they're thinking, we have searched for the Messiah for 2,000 years. We finally found him. We've been with him, and now he's gone. And so Jesus disappears, and they, they go to look for him. And, and the text says that Simon, and he's talking about Peter, Simon Peter and his companions companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they yelled, they screamed, they said, hey, Jesus, come on, man, everyone is looking for you. You can't be running off right now. We've got work to do. There's crowds everywhere. Can't even get it. The paparazzi's all outside the house. People are waiting for you to just touch the hem of their garment, waiting for your shadow to pass by them, waiting to just ask you a question, shake your hand, throw uh, palm olive branches at you. People are just waiting to see you. You're so, you're so beat, you can't be hiding off. And Jesus would respond and he would say, the fact that I'm so busy the fact that I have so much to do is actually the very reason that I got up extra early so that I could spend time with my father. Somebody needs to hear that statement again. The fact that I am so busy, the fact that I am in so much demand as a parent, the fact that I have so much going on at work and at home is all the more reason I have to get up a little extra early to spend time with my Heavenly Father. Jesus, who we are following, right? We are Jesus' followers. He gave his Father the first minutes of his day. If we're going to follow Jesus, we have to learn to give our Heavenly Father the first minutes of our day. It's a discipline. It's something that we pre-decide to do. And when we're alone and, and, 
And when we're there, we acknowledge God's greatness. We shut the door. We get into a quiet place, and we acknowledge God's greatness. We talked about this a few months ago. We declare our dependence on God. We surrender our will to his will. Not my will, not what I want, but your will be done. And we begin to anticipate the day because you know and I know temptations are coming. Amen. Right? And they look pretty much the same every day. They're they're the same temptations that we face over and over and over, the same stresses of life. We know the same meetings that are going to happen, the same talks that we're going to have to have with our husband or our wife or with our kids after school. These same things that we deal with. Finances, you know, you can't spend that much money. There's too many Amazon packages on the porch. We know those stresses, they happen all the time. But Jesus was a great example because he invited his heavenly father into the details of his life. We have to invite our heavenly father into the details of our life. So beginning the day with the reminder of our accountability to our heavenly father is, in fact, the best way to start your day. Somebody say a good amen. Time alone with God, you know what it does? It begins to form and inform our conscience. And an informed conscience, what does it do? It fine-tunes us to what brings God joy, to what makes God happy. When we spend alone time with God, we get him. We understand him, and we begin to reflect him in our lives. And an unfine-tuned or a, a, a conscience that is not fine-tuned to the things of God creates fragile faith. Now, the second spiritual discipline, I'm going to hit it quickly. This is the one that most men, to be honest with you, wrestle with the most uh, through all the years of ministry. This is something that I've seen women wrestle with it too, but men generally always struggle with this one the most. You know, men have no problem showing up to church, dragging their kids to church. Hey, man, I'll serve. You need me to greet at the door, or hey, you need me to help out with sound. I'll do something, whatever. But when it comes to giving, sometimes this is where we struggle the most, when it's about money, when it's about money. And and this is honestly not a money thing. This is a faith thing. It's a personal discipline, a private spiritual discipline. And it's called, we're calling it percentage giving. That deciding up front, I'm just going to give out of my heart. I'm going to decide up front to give a percentage. Now listen, what happens, and this is really common in this generation, and gen, and, and these Gen Xers, this is, I mean, the, what's this new generation? The, no, the, yeah, the millennials, that's the word I was looking for. And, and I have a book about this, talking about giving and, and talking about the church and where the church is today. And the church today, statistically worldwide, is, has more problem with people giving regularly, but people give to needs because that's what millennials want to do statistically. They want to give to a need. They want to provide to a need. And so that's what happens. A lot of people come in and they say, you know what, I, I just want to see a need and give. I just, you know, I want to, and, and that's not a good way to, to give. That's not a good way as we're going to discover. Listen, It's not about money. It's about priorities. 
It's about our confidence in God. It's about our faith in God. And Jesus says, and this seems really cavalier to us, but you have to understand these people were living on the edge of starvation. And Jesus made this statement in the book of Matthew. He says, listen, don't worry. Uh, so don't worry saying, what are we going to eat or what are we going to drink or what are we going to wear? Right? These are things that none of y'all probably ever thought about. What am I going to eat? I mean, yeah, where am I going to eat? But not what? What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? Um, so to be honest, we could actually change that to don't worry saying, how am I going to get my kids through college? How am I going to afford to retire? What am I going to do about this job? And Jesus says, don't worry about that, to which we would say, but we don't have enough. Because Jesus' response is this, for that's what the pagans run after. The pagans run after all these things. The pagans are, but I need, but I need, but what if, but if, but if, but if. And we sometimes are like, yeah, that's kind of me too, you know. But what if, what if. And then Jesus smiles and he says this. This, this is why it's a faith issue. He says, look, and your heavenly father knows that you need them. So then he's talking about what to eat, what to drink, and what to wear. But what, he's, what Jesus is trying to say and the message he's trying to say is, listen, the things that you're worried about, that you're thinking about, all the things that are heavy and weighing on your mind, Jesus knows you need them. Your heavenly father, God, understands. He knows that you have needs. And this is the crunch, and that's the tension. So it goes back to the question, do we believe Jesus? Do we trust in Jesus? Do we believe that Jesus understands? Do we believe that Jesus has a personal connection with our Heavenly Father? Because we trust God when we have to trust God, right? We trust Him in things that we can't control. When, when tragedy strikes our life and there's a situation that we can't control, we trust God, but it's really as a last resort because we can't say anything about it anyway. And so then we say, okay, God, I trust you. And God's saying, listen, I got an idea. How about you trust me for everything and in everything? Let's, let's do this all the time. I want to invite you to trust me all the time. I want to invite you to live your whole life trusting me. And that's what big, bold, changing, world-changing, life-changing faith looks like. Jesus says, come on, I'm inviting you to put your money where your faith is, right? And here's what he says regarding our resources. He says, but listen, I know you have a lot of needs. I get that. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Sounds familiar, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done right here, right now. He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Because why? Your father knows. He knows what you need. Now, I want to I wanna make sure you understand where I'm coming from on this. So I'm going to give you a, kind of a big statement here. Giving, when, when it comes to exercise, percentage, upfront, predecided, disciplined giving, giving exercises our faith because it involves letting go of what we are most inclined to put our confidence in rather than God. That's why it's a faith thing. It's not a money thing. It's a faith thing. 
Jesus was so brilliant. I mean, just, it was awesome the way he puts this. He says, look, you can't have two kings. You can't have two lords. You can't have two bosses. His actual verbiage was you can't have two masters. You're going to either follow one and, and hate the other or whatever. And, and biblically, we think, you know, we would go to, he's talking about God and the devil, right? You're going to go follow God or follow the devil. No, 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 no. Jesus would say, if he were here today, he would say, Jared, let me pry for a moment. Your issue is not whether you trust God, it's whether you're going to trust God or your stuff. I used to say this to my youth group all the time. God does not mind you having things. He minds when things have you, right? And that's, that's kind of the issue. Trust your wealth and, and, and learn to prioritize and set God first. Give to God first, no matter what it is. Set your heart, and this is awesome. And, and this is easy for me to say because I was born and raised into this. I was... A, I was born and raised as a giver. That's what my parents taught me. They taught me how to give. And I've given my whole life, and it's kind of come easy. And those people who know me really good would tell you that I really enjoy giving. I really love, I love blessing people. I love giving to people. And it has gotten me in trouble so many times because I just give, give, give. If I've got it, I want to give it. Uh, and so that's just me. I remember living in Lubbock, Texas, uh, being a youth pastor there, and our pastor calls up this lady, tells her story. She was going through a lot of health issues, going through really, really bad financial situation, and he opened up the front, and he said, if you feel led, you want to come down, and you want to give her and bless to her, that's great. So he did that, and I was sitting on the side as a youth pastor, and man, I just felt this super urge sensation to go give and bless her. And in salary. I did. You know what? I'm going to give her one month's salary. That's a good time to go, ooh. Because I'm tricking you. <laughs> because at the time, I was paid $25 a week. <laughs> this is a true story. I'm not lying. I was paid $25 a week to be the youth pastor. I was living in Lubbock with my grandparents. And so that $25 a week would put gas in my Firebird which gas at the time was like 82 cents or 89 cents. A gallon is really cheap and awesome. And then I could eat Burger King breakfast twice a week usually. <laughs> That's kind of how I live. And, and so I remember thinking, I'm going to give her $100. And in my mind, I was like, but I've been saving $100 to pay my car off. I've been saving $100. You know, I got this new album that came out, the CD that just came out. I had already spent that money in my head. But I remember going and giving that money. And to say that it was life-changing is just an understatement. Because something inside of me just changed forever. And I've always thought that I was a good giver. But when you step out, and you see, and I was terrible at finances. The way I balanced my checkbook is I would call the bank every morning, and they would tell you what checks cleared, you know, check number 0031. And if my check cleared, I would rip out the duplicate and throw it away. That's how I knew if my checks cleared. So if I went through and I had pink copies, I knew that those checks were still out. That's how I knew how much money I had. I thought it was genius, but I found out later on that I was pretty crazy. 
But listen, it's a faith thing. It's a faith thing. It's hard to start as an adult. But learning to give and step out and give, not just give when you see a need, because that's kind of arrogant, right? That's what the pagans do. That's what Americans do. Oh, well, there's a need. I'm going to swoop in, and I'm going to save the need. I'm going to be the savior of the day. But learning to say, you know what? I'm going to give even when there's not. I'm going to be a percentage giver. I'm going to sow because I believe in the kingdom. I want to sow into the kingdom. I want to sow into God's house. I was reading a book, and he makes the statement. He says, when, when, we, when we only give to causes that there's a need, when that's the only time we give, it creates a little bit of a Messiah complex that we're swooping in to be the solution to a problem. But if that's the only way we give, it does nothing for your faith. It only strokes your ego. So if you're going to follow Jesus, at some point you have to develop a spiritual discipline and say, you know what, I'm going to discipline myself, and I'm going to choose an amount, and I'm going to give. I'm going to be a, 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 a percentage giver. And a lot of times we wrestle that to the ground. And I'm going to skip to number three real fast. Corporate worship. Corporate worship. A lot of you, does it make much sense right now as you think, wow, that doesn't fit into the other two, you know, daily devotions, percentage giving, and then corporate worship. How is corporate worship a discipline? But I want to say this statement right here. Something happens personally when we gather corporately. Okay? Something happens personally when we gather corporately. Most of you have experienced when we sing or, or maybe you hear a, a, a sermon or a, an illustration and something happens. Listen, I, I basically want to throw it out. I remember in 2020, Shelly and I would look at each other oftentimes and we would say, wow, I really miss church. What was I saying? I wasn't saying that I missed the church building because I had a key here. I can walk here every time. In fact, I still came on Sunday mornings, and I still preached, and we still had worship. So what was it that I missed? You. I missed we. I missed us. Because there's something that happens corporately when we gather. There's something that happens to me personally when we gather corporately. There was a we thing that we missed. Listen. Jesus said this, and I'm not going to even try to say that I understand exactly what he's meaning here, uh, and I think it may be wrong on the slide. I don't know if TJ got it corrected yet, but it, he says this in Matthew. He says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. The King James Version says, there I am in the midst of them. Now, I'm not going to try to tell you that I know everything that that's talking about, but I do know at a minimum of what it means. It means this, that when I gather with you in Jesus' name, I might potentially experience something brand new in God that I might not be able to experience on my own. It means at least, it means at least that I can experience something with you that I can't experience on my own. That what I experience with God on my own is actually limited to a point when I'm not gathering with other believers. So listen, there is an experience that takes place. There's something 
personally that you gain when we gather together, right? I want to challenge you over this next month, and Jay, if you'll come back, or Elena, if you'll come back. I want to challenge you over the next 30 days, okay? And if you want to write this down or make a note of it, whatever. And I'm not going to challenge you with, with something that I'm not going to do myself. So I, too, am going to uh, stand before you, raise my right hand, and say, I am in. I accept this challenge, and I ask you to do the, thing, the same. But I challenge you this. I challenge you for the next month, teeing off with kind of what Jesus said when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first. Teeing off with that, I'm going to challenge you to give the next 30 days, to give the first minutes of your day. Okay? So, I don't know what your day, what your schedule normally looks like, but I dare you to give the first minutes of your day. I challenge you over the next 30 days to give the first dollars of your income. Not a percentage. I mean, not a certain amount or whatever. And I challenge you to give the first day of the week. To give the first minutes of the day. I'm not asking you to give all the minutes of your day, just the first. To give the first dollars of your income. Not all dollars, just the first. Just a percentage. I'm not even asking you to give 10. I'm going to sow it and commit. Be disciplined and say, you know what? I'm going to give. And I'm going to say this, that those of you that are here this morning, you do. You do. Uh, You give the first day of the week. And I appreciate it so much. Because it's tough. It's tough. Coming out of what we came out of with COVID, it has been tough. And so those that are watching online, I challenge you to give the first day of the week. Daily devotions, percentage giving, corporate worship. And at the personal level, this is really what it looks like to seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God because these things challenge us individually and personally. But just remember this, there's no progress without discipline. And who knows, what may begin as an ought to might turn into a want to, right? Wouldn't that be nice if all of our ought to's would turn into want to's? Because there's a lot of ought to's I have in my life that I wished were want-tos. So we're going to wrap this series up next week. And our last uh, part six of this, we're going to give you that last faith catalyst. But when we talk about this fifth thing that God uses to grow our faith, I just want to say this, especially those that that may be watching uh, online. But if you know someone who is going through a difficult time, someone who's struggling with whether this God thing is even real or if this church thing is actually even worth it, I challenge you to get them here next week because it's going to be really, really powerful for them. Let let me pray as we close out. Go ahead and stand with me this morning. Father, I thank you so much 
I thank you for preserving these words, and I thank you so much, God, um, for allowing our hearts to open up, and, and we say yes, God. We say yes, and Father, right now, this morning, we accept the challenge. We accept the challenge to seek first your kingdom, your kingdom, your, your kingdom come, your will be done. And to do that, we, we acknowledge that we need to, to set aside time and give you the first minutes of our day every day. God, God, whatever that looks like, however many or few minutes that may be that we just stop for a moment, we find a place uh, uh, of quietness, and we just say, God, thank you. I acknowledge your greatness. I acknowledge my dependence on you. God, I pray we accept the challenge of just beginning to give and sow the first of our dollars, our income, whatever that may look like. For some of us, that may be brand new, but it's not a money thing. It's a faith thing, trusting you, giving to you, trusting that you understand that you are connected with God and that all the good and perfect things, all the blessings in my life flow from you. God, and we give you the first day. God, it's kind of the least we can do because our lives are so busy. We've got so many things going on. God, that we give you the first day of our week. And we say, you know what? It's better that I go because there's something very personal that happens to me when I show up and worship in your name with everyone else. God, we love you and we thank you and we pray for that bold faith to be exemplified in everything that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said a big amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We love you.